0: The Ringer's music critic, Rob Harvilla, curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles and your car? Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the Prestige TV podcast feed. I'm Joanna Robinson, joining me here to talk about Better Call Saul. It's Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Ben.
2: Hi Joanna. Hey, let's try to keep this episode up to Poyo standards, please.
0: Oh, I can't. No guarantees. We're stretched thin. We're stretched thin here on the <laughs> Prestige Podcast feed. There's a lot going on. I don't know if you heard, but there's a lot of television right now. Yeah. So, I think we've got a show every day this week, uh, which is because there's a lot going on. As we happen, we'll be covering Atlanta and Wedding Time, and Sean's doing his conversations with Bill Hader about Barry on Sundays, all that stuff. And then Van and I are going to be talking about. The last, I don't know, was it six episodes of Ozark uh, that just dropped over the weekend and a whole series of television ended while we're busy doing other things. so Gotta get
2: everything in just before the Emmy eligibility deadline. Exactly, exactly. Just drop it all at once.
0: We're in the Emmy window here. So yeah, so Van and I will be here to talk about Ozark. I think that's on Thursday. But here we are. Talk about Better Call Saul. Season 4, Episode 4, Hit and Run. Yes. Directed by Ray Seahorn and her directorial debut on the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Round of applause. And written by Ann Turkis and wrote The Guy for This, Quite a Ride and Off Branch, three other great sol episodes. So yeah
2: a lot of connections to this one because the guy for this that's season five that's the one where Jimmy really gets in deep with Lalo and he says if there's going to be blowback I don't want to be in the middle of it (laughs) and Nacho says it's not about what you want when you're in you're in and he is in and he is getting some blowback in this episode too and quite a ride by the way that's the one where the episode starts in Saul's future office as Francesca is shredding documents and Saul's calling Ed so we get to see the future office and now we get to see the Origin story of The Office.
0: Any tidbits for Off Brand? <laughs>
2: no, I got nothing. <laughs> Just okay. for the first two.
0: <laughs> and as we mentioned in a previous episode, there are two directors of photography working on the show this season. Basically, they're switching odd and even episodes. So this one is Paul um, Donicky, I believe you, is how you pronounce his last name. He's doing all the even episodes, and he uh, he's the one who was like promoted from lead cameraman essentially to DP this season. So he's sort of a newer DP, so the combination of like a slightly newer DP, even though obviously he's plenty experienced, and you know, first time director in in Ray, and and like this episode is masterfully done. Yeah,
2: it looks like a Better Call Saul episode. It you sure couldn't does. tell that it's a couple of rookies <laughs> taking over here. <laughs>
0: And uh and that just sort of speaks to the the larger, uh, sure handed structure of the whole operation that they're running yeah. here. I'm glad
2: they just finally stopped phoning it in for the final yeah, season. Yeah. Just yeah. got their act together just <laughs> in time really.
0: One thing I want to mention before we get into the episode discussion itself is that there is a fake documentary series that they're producing called American Greed. You can find it on the AMC YouTube channel, which is a fake uh, Jimmy McGill documentary narrated by Stacey Keach. One of our listeners sent in an episode. I don't know how many episodes there are. I know that they do a lot of fun, like extra material around this show. But uh, the listeners sent it in saying that might be a good spot to sort of try to nail down the timeline of of the house clearing out right. that we saw in the first episode. Have you watched any any of that? Ben? No, not yet. Yeah. All right. So we, we will report back having watched more probably next week, but I just got to it a, a little bit before we started recording. A fun, fun little extra tidbit there. Next week's episode is called Black and Blue on the theme of X and Y. And we will mm-hmm. sort of get to the meaning of that title at the end of our discussion here this week. But I, I want to open Ben by asking you like something that, you know, listening to Chris and Andy talk about this episode on The Watch, you know, last week obviously was a very cartel heavy Episode with a little bit of uh, Kim and Jimmy, and then this week is the opposite a mirror of that uh, little cartel, a lot of Kim and Jimmy. But my question to you is do you feel like the shadow of Nacho's death? Was it looming over this episode, or do you feel like they just put it in a drawer for now? How do you feel about that? Well,
2: he's largely absent from this episode, at least explicitly. This is sort of an Eye of the Storm episode between Nacho's death and whatever the next tragedy turns out to be, probably. So it's more set up than payoff. There's some payoff. I guess in some series, people might call this filler, right? Which I feel like that term is often overapplied. It's like character development equals filler in many minds, but- There's not really much filler in Better Call Saul because everything's there for a reason, even if it's one of the, the more leisurely paced episodes. So this week was really more of a classic Saul episode, whereas last week was kind of the exception to the rule. So this felt like a, a vintage Saul episode, at times kind of lighthearted, not necessarily a, a final season rush to the finish line type episode. And so Nacho isn't mentioned, which I think reflects the fact that this series is so compartmentalized. Like Kim never met Nacho, as we talked about last time, right? Jimmy doesn't know Nacho is dead at this point. so. Climactic, momentous things happen to some major characters on Saul, and other major characters don't even know about it. And the ones who do know, like Gus and Mike, either don't care or keep a tight lid on their emotions. So there aren't a lot of explicit callbacks, although there was one, I think, and credit to Reddit on this one. The building that Jimmy and Wendy park next to while they're Mm. waiting for the text from Kim, which I believe is the Empire Board Game Library, a combination cafe board game spot in Albuquerque. Haven't had the pleasure of visiting (laughs) myself, but it has a wall mural that's covered in bluebells, right? So it's sort of a nod to the flower in the desert where Nacho is buried. But I think it's kind of appropriate that Nacho doesn't really pop up here. Like he's on our minds. There's a shadow hanging over this whole season at this point but it does sort of speak to how disconnected he was at times from other storylines on this series.
0: I a little bit disagree in that. I think that the Gus opener and then closer. Gus, we know, has always been meticulously careful. And maybe maybe he was, he was this tense and this wound up uh, just as soon as he knew Lala was still alive. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's when this started. But it feels like the degree of tension around Gus and his meticulous routine of I come home and then I go to my secret <laughs> fortress which is actually in another right. home that whole thing and his paranoia uh, all of that is Lalo related but I think it's just ramped up by Nacho something we talked about last week is that when Nacho gave his farewell monologue a plague on both your houses essentially and we're gonna yeah. talk about Shakespeare <laughs> yeah. but like when he did that Gus seemed legitimately rattled in a way that we don't often see him rattled so I kind right. I felt like I could kind of feel that in the Gus stuff we got in this episode, even if it was minor, you know?
2: There are a lot of little moments, not just with Gus, but with Kim, with Jimmy, where we just see the strain that they're maybe not completely cracking under, but bending under a little. So I do want to mention a few of those when we get to them a little later. But I love the opener of this episode because in classic Saul fashion, you have no idea what you're watching. Right. (laughs) It's going to tie into anything. (laughs) And then, of course, it does come full circle. And I would love to know more about this happy couple living in Gus's property here like what do you think the Zillow listing looks like for this place like <laughs> <laughs> lovely neighborhood perfect for long bike rides great homeowners association I was going to say
0: <laughs> Got to mention the HOA. Yeah, yeah. Attached
2: mansion. Secret bunker.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm living
2: in a a New York apartment with a seven-month-old at this point, and space is at a premium, so... So you (laughs) would go work for Gus? Yeah, I (laughs) I might be interested.
0: Okay. (laughs) We've seen this house that that Gus is in before, 1213 Jefferson Mm. Street, makes an appearance in Breaking Bad, so uh, this isn't the first time that we've seen it. Something that I did think was interesting in these Gus bookend moments Is that, you know, Gus is so certain that Lalo's alive. We know that Lalo's alive. And Mike was like, maybe he's dead, though. Everyone thinks Mm -hmm. he's dead. Maybe he's dead. And I just thought it was interesting to see Mike be wrong about something like that. Yeah. You know? I
2: saw the look in Hector's eyes and he knows. But I love that just like Lalo in his compound, Gus has his secret escape route, right? And Credit to Ray Seahorn in her TV directorial debut for that long shot where she follows Gus to his second home and there's no cut right from when he Mm -hmm. leaves one house to get to the other which sort of emphasizes that there's really no separation between the two gusses there's the public front and there's what's actually going on there but they're joined they're joined by this little tunnel they're joined by this shot with no cuts so i thought that was a nice touch
0: your binary theory (laughs) your two faces theory Mm -hmm. speaking of like the shadow of nacho i want to shout out this email we got from our listener and nathan you can always email us Kim Wexler lives at gmail.com. But Nathan wrote and he says, it's possible that one of the many ways we'll, we'll quote unquote never watch Breaking Bad the same way again is to deepen our perspective of character motivations. Maybe every time Gus sees Jesse Pinkman in Breaking Bad, he sees Nacho. Unpredictable. Jesse doesn't fear him as much as everyone else does. He's a problem dog. And I think we've been talking a lot about the way in which maybe Mike sees some of Nacho in Jesse, but I don't think we really touched on maybe how... Gus might see another Nacho in Jesse. What do you What do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward actually to rewatching Breaking Bad, and I'm not normally a rewatcher just because <laughs> there's so much new stuff to watch always, it's true. <laughs> which you can find out about on the <laughs> Prestige TV podcast. But I am actually looking forward to diving back into Breaking Bad because it's been a while, and because I feel like it'll look different now. Obviously, yeah. the series itself is not changing; it's just going to be what we're bringing to it. So whether it's explicit tie in something that happens on the rest of this season that completely colors the way that we look at the series or it's just the backstory we know it's just what we intuit I wonder what Saul is thinking about in this moment I wonder what Mike is thinking about this moment I wonder if he's remembering that moment with Kim or with Jimmy right so I am looking forward to just seeing what I bring to it just as a viewer who's seen both series when I dive back in so I think Nathan's right
0: I really love how we're going to be thinking about i mean like we're constantly thinking about what breaking bad can tell us about saul right like like what we know about saul in breaking bad and what that can tell us about the trajectory these characters are on but i love the the possibility of the vice versa speaking of which it's time for a little musical break <laughs> Okay, that's, uh, that song is Windy by The Association. And uh, it's from one of my favorite musical montages in Breaking Bad, which is why I knew, of course, exactly who we were seeing at the motel uh, to help with the hit and run you made such a good prediction about who might help uh jimmy and kim i was like i was convinced as soon as i saw the two bicycles yeah at the beginning of the episode i was like <laughs> ben was right i thought i <laughs> predicted something for once but instead it's a it's a breaky bad character wendy the uh the sex worker jesse Pinkman's erstwhile paramour and that song uh was used to introduce her in the series i rewatched that montage actually this morning and i just Guess what? Breaking Bad was a good show. Did you know that, Ben? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I recall. <laughs> so yeah, so we get Wendy and we get uh, character Spooge, who is one <laughs> of uh, Saul's or Jimmy's first uh, customers yeah. here.
2: Spooge looks great, by the way. One of the only Breaking Bad characters who actually looks younger on Better Call Saul. Maybe <laughs> this yeah. was before he picked up his meth habit. So exactly. So maybe that has something to do with it before he had his fatal run-in with an ATM.
0: Drugs, not even once, guys. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't remember, <laughs> Spooge is a character who holds up... Skinny Pete is knife at knife point, and then and take some drug money. Later, Jesse goes to get the drug money back from him, and he's sort of he's embroiled with Spooch, his paramour, and their small child, and uh, the the lady in question crushes Spooch with an ATM. Mm-hmm. But it's a really peekaboo is a really interesting episode in terms of the development of Jesse Pinkman. It's a really it's a really good rewatch. But what's true about both Wendy and Spooch? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> trying to say spooch. Seriously. Let's about both of these characters. Is it's been 11 and 13 years respectively since we last saw them on Breaking Bad. Right. Did it make you feel the passage of time in your bones, Ben Lindbergh? I feel older that? myself.
2: I'm not saying I look <laughs> as young as I did when I was watching Breaking Bad either.
0: But this goes to that like plug and play aspect that we were talking about last week. Like if they're like, okay, we need someone to help with this grift or we need uh, you know, a scuzz bag to be one of Saul's first pers- first clients. Like, let's go to the board. Who do we have? Windy and Spooge. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always say. It's really fun. And it's not only fun, but I think, again, they're really cleverly using this stuff, not just as a nostalgia play. There's a phrase that they used in the Insider podcast uh, pre-Easter eggs. <laughs> they used it in reference to that opening teaser of this season when they're clearing out Saul's mansion, right? And we see a right. bunch of things and we saw... we. Slowly as the season rolls on, these little items that we saw in the house will take on meaning. Like in this episode, it's the owl beanie baby that Saul tried to use to get in the good graces of (laughs) courthouse employee. I guess he just held on to that for some reason. It wound up uh, in his house or the painting in Kim's apartment in last week's episode. So I think these like little items that we saw... Basically, what they said is that they filmed that that sequence, the clearing of the house later. So they were able to just like go through the season and pluck little items to put into the house. So they showed us a bunch of things in the season opener that will later make sense for us in the season. And I think they're doing a similar thing with how they're using these characters, both from earlier seasons of Saul and the early days of Breaking Bad to sort of weave this tapestry that feels tightly knit and coherent. What do you think?
2: Yeah, And we're getting one of these priester eggs that's getting revealed in each episode, or at least each non-nacho episode. And so you have to wonder, is this just a bunch of junk he had lying around? I mean, if you dig in one of my drawers, right, it it might not be items of special significance to me. (laughs) It might just be some stuff I never got rid of. Or is he holding on to these things because they actually mean something to him? They are haunting him in some way. But it's not just stuff coming back from there or coming back from Breaking Bad. It's often coming back from the beginning of Mm Saul, which we saw in this episode with Jimmy's Howard cosplay, which is (laughs) both convincing and disturbing. We've seen him. Donned the pinstripe suit before. And now he's back to that. So it's kind of, you know, he's up to his old tricks, the valet trick, the Howard cosplay trick, all of the old standbys in his repertoire he is bringing back here. And I I like that Howard got that moment, you know, that I'd like to have sat in on more of Howard's therapy sesh here, because we found out that he has his own life and we know nothing about it. Right. I mean, He starts this session by talking about how things are going for him at HHM, and that's the only thing we've really seen of him in this series, but there's more to him. He lifts the veil a little bit before we go away to see how the scam is progressing, but it's a reminder that he is a a human being. He's got some troubles at home. He's not just a pawn in our protagonist's plans here, so I appreciated that. I don't know whether we'll see more, whether we'll find out more about Howard's troubled relationship or not here, but at least we got... A brief window into that world.
0: Speaking of windows, I thought it was a really, I think one of the smartest shots of the episode is the shot inside Howard's therapy session. Out the window, you see Jimmy in the Howard cosplay doing right. his like shtick. And it's funny. Like the whole thing is funny, obviously. Him trying to like wrench the sign out of the ground, all of that, like, you know, you're anxious for him. All that frantic comedy is really good. But at the same time, it's like you're listening to Howard talk about how he's a real person with a real life. Meanwhile, here's this like, <laughs> Little goblin outside, like seeking to destroy it, and that (laughs) juxtaposition, I think, is was really smart to be because because Howard could have been in any appointment any something. But the fact that they made it a therapy appointment and the fact that they use that moment to draw us inside Howard's life in a way we've never been before however briefly, I think is really intentional and smart, right?
2: And the fact that Jimmy slash Saul and Kim are mad about someone moving the cone which, again, I'm not a driver. I don't have a car. I don't have to deal with reserving parking spots. But Kim says narcissists move cones, right? I mean, I would think that narcissists would be the ones to put the cones down in the first place, right? That you think you own this parking spot and beyond that they're offended that someone moved the cone while they're in the middle of stealing someone's car (laughs) and framing him and tearing down his career right and while they're upset about the cones it's great
0: yeah the the return of the howard suit which is from season one episode four hero and jimmy's depressing journey through the courthouse in this episode really does reward that season one rewatch that you and i did Mm -hmm. even like the premiere Season one, episode one. Well done, us. Um, yeah. Pat ourselves on the back for <laughs> Good our preparation. That's... But again, that's the way that the show is really intelligently making everything feel really intentional, right? Like mm-hmm. that it's, look, this is the same story we've been telling this whole time. We're going to mirror. See, A lot of shows do that actually in their final season. They'll find ways to mirror season one. But Saul does it better than most people do it. So she doesn't even have a name. This character played by Nadine Marissa is the contract council admin. She doesn't mm-hmm. even have a character name. She looms larger from... Like, I thought she was more present in the series, but we haven't seen her since season two. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought she was a figure that we see a lot of. And then, of course, like, uh, Bill Oakley is a character that we've seen uh, eternally. But for him to be one... Passing judgment on on Jimmy in a way we're going to talk about in a second. Like I think that that's really brilliant use of of small characters and small beats, small patterns to show the trajectory of a character that has been changing incre- so incrementally. I was going back through, uh reading some old stuff to just catch up on coverage of the of the season, and there's been so many articles written by so many smart people who write about TV about like, finally, we're seeing Saul emerge. And I'm like, it's not a one time heel turn. It's mm-hmm. just slowly chipping away at someone until they wind up where they wind up. Do you know what I right. mean?
2: Yeah. And this episode, I I think it marks uh, an important point in that turn in a few ways. But that scene in the courthouse is kind of heartbreaking. I mean, Not that Jimmy has ever been really a respected figure around there. I mean, Bill, the deputy DA, he says, I liked you better when you were just a regular bottom feeder. So it's not like anyone was putting Jimmy on a pedestal at any point, but they tolerated him. They may have had some affection for him. They at least accepted his Beanie Baby bribes, (laughs) right? And now he's sitting alone at the lunch table and his only company is the crooks who are calling him. And it's sad, right? Because he's always someone who has wanted to be liked and to be respected. And he never got that from his brother, which is sort of what made him break bad or break Saul in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so now it's coming home to roost, right? And now he is Saul walking through the courthouse, not Jimmy.
0: It feels like it happens so slowly and it's yet so quickly at the same time. I was rewatching Lantern, which is the episode where Chuck dies. I was rewatching it last week because uh Nacho's dad was in it, and I told you I was re-watching all the Nacho Dad <laughs> scenes. But yeah. in that episode, and I'm glad I'm glad I just like happened to rewatch it, and you'll remember this because I think you did a full rewatch, is that that's the episode where to try to move things along in the sandpiper case, Jimmy has to set himself up to be the bad guy. So he sets it up where these like senior citizens who he has been, yes, manipulating, but also enjoys being really popular with Mm -hmm. he sets it something up where he is overheard on a mic so that they hear him exaggerating his villainy so that they will turn on him because he needs them to turn on him to rally around this other person to make the case go forward but the point is he needs to set himself up as the bad guy and he hates doing it because he actually loved being loved by these senior citizens and we see jimmy pull all these griffs Uh, He's definitely a grifter, but also like when he's in a grift where he's just charming people and they love him, that is like, that's his happiest place of existence, you know?
2: Yeah. And in this episode, on the outside, he's basically Saul now. On the inside, he might not quite be there yet, but we're seeing everyone turn their backs on him and everyone from his Jimmy life, even Mrs. Nguyen from the nail salon, she's kicked him out because of his clientele. He's now fulfilled what Betsy Kettleman said in season one about him being the kind of lawyer guilty people would hire. And only a certain class of criminals, not even white collar criminals like the Kettleman's. Not that they ever acknowledge that they're criminals, but (laughs) now he has this new class of criminal who wants his services because, you know, he has the reputation for being the guy who got Lalo off. And when Spooge (laughs) asks him if he's Salamanca's guy, he says, yeah, that's me. So he is fully embracing his Amigo del Cartel brand here. And we even saw Francesca show up in the next time on at the end of the episode. So she's about to be in place. So All of the pieces are here now, and I don't know if he is fully Saul at heart. Something else has to happen to make him snap, Mm -hmm. I think. But he has the office. He's about to have Francesco back. He has the clientele. Like, it's all happening. Yeah, he's got the (laughs) suits, of course. So he needs the car. (laughs) He needs some remodeling. He needs the the gold toilet instead of the white toilet that's in the middle of his (laughs) empty office. Uh So he's got to upgrade his (laughs) toilets. But other than that, he's, he's almost
0: there. As I promised, we're going to talk about Shakespeare in a minute. But like <laughs> digging into Shakespeare and the and the Gilligan verse, I found this great article that Emily St. James over at Vox wrote for the 10th anniversary of Breaking Bad about Shakespeare and the five act structure and how that relates to how. The story of Breaking Bad was told uh, told over five seasons, how that story was told. Really good read that I recommend. Um, I talk about it a little bit throughout this episode. But that idea of the five-act structure, I was sort of looking at how that mapped over to Breaking Bad and thinking how could we map it over to Better Call Saul. And the point being is like something will happen right in the middle, not towards the end, but right in the middle. That is the turning point, the like past the point of no return sort of spot. And I think that has to be Chuck's suicide, which is the end of season three, right in the middle of the story that we're telling here. I mean, unsurprising. It's not like they have pretended like that wasn't a huge moment. But I don't know that we've really grokked what exactly that snuffed out in Jimmy or what how exactly that bound Kim and Jimmy together is something I was thinking about. I was thinking about that tequila bottle, which is something... That they got in season two, but they didn't drink until Chuck died at the end of season three is when they opened mm. the bottle. And that's a moment I feel like Kim knowing that Chuck is gone and that's a wound that's never going to heal in Jimmy is something that I think just bound her to him Forever, I don't know. Do you? What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that closed the book on the possibility that Jimmy could ever earn Chuck's respect and avoid becoming Saul. So it was an important turning yeah. point in that respect, and also, I think, in the sense that he then buried the emotion that came out of that and any guilt that he felt. And that was an important moment for Howard too. He might be in that therapy session in part because of the part that he thinks he played in Chuck's death. So it was definitely a a turning point for multiple characters and something that I think brought Jimmy and Kim closer together. It was kind of a, a point of no return, right? I mean, it may have been apparent to all of us that Chuck had made up his mind probably in childhood about his brother, But Jimmy was still holding out some hope that he might one day be something better in Chuck's eyes. And it turned out that that wasn't possible. And Chuck snuffed out that possibility when he snuffed out his life. And it's
0: all just free fall, fall fallout from there. You know what I mean? Like Chuck dies and then we're just like in a downhill run to where we find Saul at the beginning of Breaking Bad. There's this other phrase that. Emily used in that piece to describe the genius of what like Gilligan and Gould do of uh, this idea of something being unexpected yet also completely inevitable. And this is what she uses to refer to that thing that you and I have talked about a couple times, the way that Gilligan and Gould, et cetera, will write their characters into corners just for the joy of writing them back out again. That kind of TV writing mm-hmm can be the worst kind of TV writing in, uh, in, in more inept hands, right? Like I think of, and forgive me for invoking the show when we're talking about Better Call Saul, but I think about Glee and one of the things that drove me crazy about Glee.
2: I often think about Glee I'm Better <laughs> Call Saul too. But I'm well, on the same page there.
0: One of the things that drove me out of my mind about that show is that there was just huge character inconsistencies. There's no character consistency uh, episode mm-hmm. to episode. There are a million other bad TV shows I could have pulled up as an example, but this (laughs) drove me absolutely out of my mind when watching Glee. The characters just did whatever they needed to do that week to serve the plot. And who they were inherently didn't matter. And I think the reason that Gilligan and Gould, et cetera, can get away with what they do is not just that like in this really clever seeding back in season one elements into here, but also whatever is happening is rooted in this character of Jimmy McGill. Whatever he does or doesn't do, whatever decision he makes, and the same with Kim. So it's all psychologically rooted to stuff like Jimmy's compulsive need to be liked. And so when he walks around the courthouse and nobody likes him anymore, he's like, well, fine, I'll go where I'm liked and where I'm liked is by these criminals. They, you know, right. and then and then we see him working the line outside the nail salon and just haven't. A ball. He's like, oh, you two. Yeah. Oh, I love your leathers. You two together, okay? You know, like that's right. where he's. He just wants to be wanted and needed, and and loved and liked, which we all do. But Jimmy has a real hole in him that needs to to be filled. You know what I right.
2: mean? Right. And and Kim says, sorry, you had a hard day, and he's like, no, I had a great day, which is very similar to uh, when we saw a recent scene with uh, them eating, Jimmy and Kim, and he says to her, it was a hard day, and and she says, no, it was it was great. It was the best day of my career. So I think they both have something going on inside that maybe is a little different. Maybe they don't even fully understand each other and what the other wants, what Mm. constitutes a a good day for Kim or Mm. for Jimmy is something that maybe they don't even recognize in each other, even if it's sort of similar for both of them.
0: That's so interesting. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Here's the headline. If you're with Verizon or just joining Verizon everyone can get their best phone deals. You can even get an iPhone 15 on them with any iPhone trade-in, any model, any condition, guaranteed with unlimited ultimate. Visit verizon.com to shop. $829.99, 128 gigabyte only, device payment or full retail purchase with new or upgraded smartphone line on unlimited ultimate plan, minimum $90 per month with auto pay, plus taxes and fees for 36 months required. Less $830 trade-in or promo credit applied over 36 months, Promo credit ends if eligibility requirements are no longer met. 0% APR, trade in terms apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks on a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, Feeling thirsty right now? How about going to visit a 7 Eleven, valid through 1725? 7 Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating US stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved.
0: All right, now we're going to get to the point of why I went down the Shakespeare rabbit hole in the first place, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is Mike and Kim's first scene together. Yeah. Big moment for, for the show we've been talking about Chris and Andy have been talking about anyone who studies the show has been talking about the binary between the Mike show and the Jimmy show. And this at last meeting of these two characters feels like a a real bridge in a way that we haven't seen, you know, the the personal side of Jimmy's life, even beyond her Lalo encounters last season is like meeting a really important key figure on this other side of his life. And that feels like it feels like it's finally one show Mm -hmm. in a way with this moment
2: yeah and i love how it was introduced and credit to seahorn again but when you first see mike just out of focus in the corner of the frame sitting at the counter mm-hmm. behind kim and then in the next shot you just see a part of his shoulder before the camera pans to the right so it's like he's been lurking at the corner of the frame of kim's life all along right not just because his guys are literally tailing her these days but also because through his relationship with jimmy and their entanglement. He's been having an impact on her, whether she knows it or not, whether she knows him. I mean, she knows him from being a parking lot attendant. That's all she knows. And they've come a long way, both of them, since their HHM Mm -hmm. parking lot attendant days. And I I wonder whether Mike ever wishes he were still checking parking validation. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: like, (laughs) when he's
2: shooting Werner in the desert or he's uh, ready to snipe Nacho or, or anyone near Nacho? Is he thinking, I wish I were still sitting in my comfy. <laughs> little parking lot attendant spot.
0: I could be playing hungry hungry hippos right now with my granddaughter yeah it's <laughs> right. it's interesting because again that's another season one connective tissue moment right like you're you're the parking lot attendant mm-hmm. I was right I, I used to yeah. be that's not who I am anymore uh yeah. past the point of no return our, our one of our listeners Ron wrote in asking like what we make of how if we're to understand how Kim's characters progressed what do we make of how she reacts to the stressful news? of who's following her and that Lalo's alive and stuff like that compared to what we've seen Kim, how we've seen Kim react earlier. He mentioned her with like the papers on the side of the road, like various moments of Kim encountering stress and strain. Something that Chris said that I thought was so smart. On the watch, was this idea that, like, when you watch an episode directed by an actor on a show, you get maybe a better chance of understanding how they understand their character? So, since mm-hmm. she's the director, this is maybe the best insight we've had to Kim Wexler ever in the show. So, what, how did you read her reaction? To this news here.
2: Yeah, late season Kim, current Kim, she always keeps it together, right? When she's in the room when the conversation is happening, it's like in the last episode when the deal for Jimmy was presented to her and she hears the name Lalo and you can kind of see something flicker across her face, but Mm -hmm. then it's immediately composed again. She has her lawyer face back on. And it's sort of the same here, right? I mean, she keeps her composure when this guy at the counter accosts her and tells her Lalo's alive and that they've been tailing her. And then after Mike leaves, then she starts shaking, right? And she's almost in shock. And we see some of that stress come out. And we're getting these glimpses of emotion from almost every character. This is what we alluded to earlier in the episode. And we see it with Kim here when she's shaking in that scene later in the episode at the end when she's sitting with her head down in the car at the end of the episode before Jimmy knocks on the window. And then she's sort of startled. And something my wife noticed, the foot tapping she does when she's sitting with Cliff. Mm waiting for jimmy to drive up that's an echo of the first shot of season five episode seven when Kim and Jimmy are about to get married and they're talking about how now they're going to be honest with each other at all times, the first thing you see in that scene is Kim's foot tapping. Her face is composed, but that's just the little tell. It's
0: her tell.
2: <laughs> something is coming out it. here, right? And and we're seeing that with everyone. We saw it with Jimmy letting Lalo's name slip out to the prosecutors. We saw it with Gus breaking the glass, and then in this episode being nervous about a plumber who's driving him, right? So he's seeing Lalo everywhere too, and of course we know he's wearing a bulletproof vest and an ankle gun. So even if characters aren't necessarily saying or vocalizing their nerves, I mean, Kim does say to to Jimmy, do you ever feel like you're being followed? But it's pretty restrained, and yet these little things come out, these little mannerisms, one word here or there, a foot tap, whatever it is, a breaking glass, we can kind of sense the strain that everyone's under as we head to the end stages here. And everyone in the audience is under that strain too. I mean, we're probably all tapping our foot or doing something similar in our own homes.
0: That's really smart. I, loved you. I love that rundown. The, the, I would add when Jimmy and Wendy are waiting to you know, play their scene out and Kim's texting him, and it feels like he's having a moment there where he's like, is this a bridge too far? Like, should <laughs> yeah. I do this? Which is consistent with what we've been seeing with Jimmy of like, Kim's maybe the one plowing ahead and he's the one feeling uncertain. But in this episode, we see her also feeling uncertain. Mm-hmm. The, I want to ask you about the ponytail shot. Like mm. we were, we were just talking about this the other day about you. What, okay. So what have, what have you heard from the creative team behind the show about like what Kim's ponytail, her perfectly curled ponytail means?
2: I'm pretty sure I I read a quote that that was a conscious choice that the tightness of the ponytail or how orderly or disheveled it was would reflect Kim's mental state. So if it's very tightly pulled back that reflects just her kind of keeping her composure at all times and keeping up appearances and being very tightly under controlled whereas occasionally you'll see she lets her hair down maybe when things are getting out of hand a little bit or whether she's indulging her vice right and Mm. getting in on some grift so maybe we're seeing something along those lines here as well.
0: Well what's interesting is so like the ponytail is tight uh, Mm. in in the sequence with Cliff but what we're seeing is as she's adjusting her hair the camera on the ponytail as it's bouncing around as she's sort of shifting shifting her chair around to make sure that they are angled properly where they need to be to see the car but it also i think again speaks to that like nerviness that the foot tapping the checking the phone all that stuff um but i love like as an artistic choice i love the ponytail shot in that Mm -hmm. episode in that sequence i thought it was so good Mm -hmm. all right so the thing that that mike says to kim uh, he says, which no matter before I understood it to be a Shakespeare illusion, I still thought it was a monumental line yeah. uh, when he tells her she's made of sterner stuff than her husband. Shout out, as you did earlier, to Reddit for <laughs> for, <laughs> for finding the Shakespeare. And this is from Julius Caesar. Best part of the play, actually, which is Mark Antony's speech after Caesar has died and Brutus and the assassins have sort of convinced the crowd that Caesar deserved to be assassinated. And Mark Antony, his friend, gets up and gets on the mic <laughs> and and gives a speech that riles the crowd back up. And he says this. He says, he was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was... In, like So Mark Antony's whole purpose here is to convince the crowd that Caesar was not an ambitious... Uh, brutal loser, uh, loser, brutal ruler, <laughs> but a, uh, but a kind, gentle guy. And he says, he was my friend, faithful and just to me, but Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious when that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. And so, on the one hand, when we say now ambition should be made of sterner stuff, I think in our capitalist society we would say that that would be a compliment you pay someone, right? Like you have mm-hmm. ambition, you should be made of sterner stuff, all this sort of thing. Antony is using it here as an insult, like claiming that, that Brutus is made of ambition and sterner stuff and... Oh, poor gentle Caesar. He didn't deserve to be stabbed. He's not, you know, and he's lying. He's using propaganda here. But I think that this idea when Mike is saying it, he's meaning it as a compliment. But in this world that we're watching here, this idea that Kim is made of sterner stuff is not ultimately a good thing. Or, right. I'm reading way too much into this, what do you think? Yeah,
2: I think there are multiple interpretations. I mean, just on the surface level, it is literally true, I think, that she just has more nerve than Jimmy, mm-hmm. probably. I mean, we've seen that. She displays that in this episode where she thinks she's being tailed and her response is just to walk up and, and say, hey, why are you tailing me? Take right? their I mean, plates? Like, yeah, that's What a bold. badass. Yeah. And, of course, Mike was listening in when Lalo paid his visit to Jimmy and Kim, right? So he knows that Kim was really the one who protected Jimmy in that spot and and kind of cowed Lalo in that situation so it's true but putting my English major hat on here for a second
0: (laughs) yes join me
2: (laughs) just kidding my English major hat is always on but (laughs) if we look at the Friends Romans Countrymen speech here I guess you know Right. Brutus is saying it's good that Caesar is dead because Caesar was so ambitious. Antony is saying Caesar couldn't have been so ambitious and so heartless because if he was so moved by the plight of the poor, then that was genuine, although maybe that was emotion was, was an act. So I guess there are a couple possible interpretations. One is that Mike is Antony. Kim is Brutus, who has the sterner stuff, and Saul slash Jimmy is Caesar. Yeah. So maybe Kim is going to betray Saul the way that Brutus did Caesar. I guess that would go toward the the long con theory that people are still holding on to. Or maybe it means that Kim is Caesar and she's going to get betrayed because she is unquestionably ambitious, But she's also concerned for the poor, right? Like she has that. That's why she's trying to disrupt public defending. So maybe this means she has to pick a lane. Or she's going to end up getting stabbed, (laughs) whether figuratively or literally, because we see that conflict in this episode where she's talking to Cliff, right? And Mm -hmm. the whole point of this conversation is to set up the scam, to set up Howard. But then, almost without meaning to maybe, she persuades Cliff that her idea (laughs) (laughs) for helping out people is actually viable and he's into it. And so it's like, well, which one do you want here? Which one are you actually trying to do? And when she's recapping that conversation for Jimmy later, she says, oh, God, it was beautiful. Right. And she's talking about the fact that they conned Cliff here, Mm -hmm. that it worked. She's not saying it's beautiful that she convinced Cliff to go along with her plan to help underprivileged people of Albuquerque. She's saying it was beautiful that she convinced Cliff that it was Howard in the car. And yet she's still trying to have it both ways. Right. I mean, she's still trying to scam Howard on one end and then also help people on the other end, like sometimes in the same conversation, in the same diner on the same day. And it just seems like it, it's hard to have it both ways. And even if in theory, scamming Howard is a way to get a sandpiper settlement so that they can have the money to help people. We know it's not about that. And even they know on some level that it's not about that. It's about so, gold,
0: gold toilets, yeah. I think I think we find, yeah.
2: Right. So is she going to end up like Caesar if she doesn't either embrace the ruthless, heartless ambition yeah. or be legitimately concerned for people and give up the ambition?
0: I love this idea that like a lot of ink has been spilled about the fact that like Macbeth is a good comp for Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. um, a character full of ambition who gets just sort of ine- inevitably pulled into tragedy because of his own taste for power i never thought of it before this moment but caesar is such an interesting comparison for saul because there is, there is so much that hinges on oration and convincing and conning and all this sort of stuff that is the heart of saul um, in mm-hmm. a way that that Breaking Bad never was, speechifying. <laughs> um, so I I just I think I'll be thinking about it, and I'm sure that they're not sitting there with like a one to one character to character comp in their writers room. But I you know th- it's not it, it's not an accident that this line is here. I also always have my English major hat on, and I'm so happy yeah. to be doing this with you because Sean Fantasy just rolls his eyes whenever I was <laughs> like, let's talk about the Shakespeare of it all. So thanks no, for joining. There's me. A,
2: a lot of illusions here. They're juggling Days of Wine and Roses in the writers room. They're juggling Shakespeare we're giving our listeners a lot of homework here but I love that Saul like this is not obviously as pulse pounding an episode as the last one Mm -hmm. but it really is a a payoff of sorts it is a kind of climax just to see Kim and Mike sit quietly in this restaurant for a minute like (laughs) how many series are there where it's like oh they finally met that is like a big thing that you're wondering if that will ever happen in the last episode. It's not, will they kill each other or will they run away with each other? It's just, will their paths ever cross? Will they ever have a conversation? And then they do. And it feels really consequential and weighty for these characters just to encounter each other and just to have a conversation that's built on sort of a a mutual respect. (laughs) So I appreciate that about this series.
0: Last time I felt that way was... Thrones cause like, yeah, because like right. because specifically Thrones was such like a far-flung story mm-hmm. right so you have characters in different continents and you're like, will these two characters ever share screen time and even though Kim and Mike were tooling around Albuquerque a much smaller. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Extra patch of land, it still does feel so as hugely significant as someone like sailing over from Essos yeah, to like, you know, the Kingdoms. Someone, yeah. this is
2: Albuquerque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and,
2: and there's not even that big a cast, right? It's not even that yeah. big an ensemble in the series compared to Thrones and yet they have managed to keep them apart to this point.
0: We got a couple of listener emails before we get to sort of our wrap up here, which is a uh, listener Shruti wrote in, is there any, like basically she's asking, is there anything to be gleaned for the fact that like Kim has seemed to set up shop in the el camino and el camino is the name of like jesse pinkman's sort of happily ever after movie spoilers for el camino happily ever after movie uh that he gets like is this an indication that kim wexler's gonna make it because she's in the el camino (laughs) restaurant um, I mean, I love our st- email I love address a is, is Kim Wixler Lives. <laughs> <laughs> We're
2: aspirational people around here. Yeah. I'd love to. It, it would be pretty to think so. <laughs> so sure, let's go with that.
0: Shruti's <laughs> email was titled Kim Wexler Thrives. I love that. Not just lives, but thrives. Our listener Max wrote in with the theory that Kim kills Lalo, this like sterner mm. stuff uh, thing. Again, this is a show that is so about incremental moments that it feels it feels like we don't have enough runway to for me to get... Kim to murder though like murder can happen if your back's against the wall in like any sort of circumstance I'm sure and Mm -hmm. there certainly could be a storyline where one
2: episode of Breaking Bad right (laughs) right
0: yeah so if Kim does kill Lalo let's say and then does she need to be disappeared so that the Salamancas do not exact revenge yeah. on her?
2: Assuming they realize he's alive at some point before he dies. Yes.
0: <laughs> right. Well, Hector knows he's alive, right? right but like, true. yeah. So does, is that why like Kim...
2: He can't tell anyone because as we've covered... <laughs> they they not will not get him, with him with a speaking spell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. So... um that's an idea i also saw a theory that like kim's gonna go work for lalo like what's interesting about kim at this point is that any of those things feel possible any of like kim breaking back good Mm -hmm. because she's nervous or kim breaking all the way bad both feel equally possible to me in this rich character that they've created here and, again, it'll, it'll be that, like, sort of surprising but inevitable feeling right. of, like, it's not going to feel out of character, whatever it is, you know?
2: Yeah, the conversation about whether they're wicked, she says, do you think we're wicked? What? No, it's just a turn of phrase, he responds. And I think both of those outcomes are in play, at least yeah. for her, potentially, at this point. Was I the only one who thought she was being followed by Noho Hank? a
0: oh, 100%. I was like, <laughs> hey. Barry's back, baby. <laughs>
2: I thought we were getting a crossover episode here.
0: I got really excited. I 100% was like, is it Noah Hank in yeah. the car? <laughs> One last thing before sort of my roundup that I've decided we're going to do this week and maybe every week uh, is the Office Origin story. You know, I get a little irritated. Well, this is when you and I are going to have another one of our solo Star Wars stories conversations. <laughs> uh-huh. But like, when we get something that's so blatant as it's like, this is how Han Solo got his blaster or whatever, you know, it's right. like I get a little... Tired of those kind of prequel moments. How did this feel for you? This is how Saul finds his office.
2: I felt a little bit that way about when we saw how he discovered the Statue of Liberty flappy mm. person. I didn't necessarily <laughs> need to know where that came from. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I mean, we had to see or or it seemed likely that we would see where he got the office. We know Kim proposed the idea the concept for the office. And I kind of liked the way it was introduced because he says, it's temporary till I find something better, which seems like such a sad line because we know he doesn't find anything better, right? Like, this is as good as it gets for Saul. But that actually gave me hope because maybe Saul is temporary, right? Maybe Saul is just a, a way station on Jimmy's life. And maybe Jimmy can find something better in his post-Breaking Bad life as Gene Takovic or as himself again before the end of the season. So that's the way I hopefully interpreted it. We know he's going <laughs> to... There's always a
0: Cinnabon to consider. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: We know he's going to get the golden toilet. So maybe <laughs> things will look up in other ways. But... Yeah, I I didn't mind seeing how it all came together. It obviously looks a lot different from the last time we saw it or the next time we saw it, but I appreciated, you know, it's uh conveniently located close to the courthouse. So it might smell bad, but <laughs> it's all
0: about location. It's ex- it's exactly what Kim asked for. So all right, this is this is something I'm calling theory corner roundup. It's not all theory based, okay. but it's sort of like forward looking stuff, right? So one thing that that. Reddit, rightly so, has lashed onto is this idea of Clifford Main's drug addict son. Mm -hmm. My favorite theory for two minutes before it was disproven. was that Clifford Maine's drug-addicted son might be Skinny Pete, um, yeah. who plays the piano beautifully, and we don't know his last name or his parents, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actor who plays Skinny Pete has tweeted out, please stop acting, asking me. I tried. He's like, po- it's really, it broke my heart. He's like, this is the photo I sent them to prove that I could look, like, healthy and younger. Um, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> and they didn't not a bite. a necessity,
2: not a requirement to be on the show. <laughs> but... Yeah, it doesn't work, right? Because there are some biographical details we get for Skinny Pete that would seem to contradict the Clifford Main dad theory. What do we
0: know about Skinny Pete? I
2: think Skinny Pete, credit to the Breaking Bad (laughs) wiki here, said his dad was a contractor at some point. Mm, That's right. That's right. And I think he also says his name is actually Pete or Peter. And Cliff says his son's name is Gregory here. So... I don't think it works. But. I love the idea of like, <laughs> I like the idea.
0: Gregory yeah. Peter Main. Anyway, right. do you think, other than the fact that obviously this positions Cliff to be in a place to be extra sensitive to any of Howard's activities, unforgiving perhaps of mm-hmm. Howard's fabricated drug addiction, uh, mm-hmm. do you think there's any going to be any kind of payoff to Cliff's son? Probably not. Yeah. I would guess probably not.
2: Yeah. It kind of raises your antenna a little bit that he mentioned that, but it could just be a justification for why this scam works so well on him, right?
0: Okay. As you mentioned, we we see Francesca in the preview Mm -hmm. for next week. There seems to be, like, let's just do, like, a quick Francesca check-in. The last time we saw her, so she was a receptionist for Kim and Jimmy in their office that they briefly shared together, right? And she loved Kim. Yeah. And tolerated Mm -hmm. Jimmy. (laughs) Uh, when we meet her at the beginning of Breaking Bad, like when Saul is leaving his office, he's like talking about her booty and like, it's, yes. it's like pretty <laughs> skeevy, actually. Yep. And in general, Francesca seems like down for all the criminal activity that's happening around her. So like, I don't need to spend a ton of time wondering how Francesca got where she got. But like, those are two dots that are in need of some major connection for me. Yeah. What are you thinking mm-hmm. about that?
2: Yeah. And it could just be working with Saul for a while. Right. Again, there are a few years between where we are and where Breaking Bad begins. So if you're Saul's assistant for a few years, I imagine that (laughs) that could rub off on you in some unpleasant ways.
0: Literally. Anyway, yeah. So um, so yeah. So Francesca, the the assistant in Saul's office in Breaking Bad is gonna come back to do something next week. What about Mike at this point, given that he thinks Kim is made of sterner stuff? Mm -hmm. What could possibly put Mike as someone who's doing work for Saul sometimes?
2: Man, that is a question. (laughs) I would love to know the answer to that question. There's a lot of time here that could transpire. A lot of things could happen. I assume we will get some sort of answer to this by the end of this season, I would think. So whether it's maybe Jimmy slash Saul earning Mike's respect on some level because of how he handles Kim, maybe Mm. he protects Kim in some way maybe just Mike wants to get out of the game or extricate himself somewhat while still being able to provide for his family, right? I mean, at some point, maybe he wants to stop like executing his friends. (laughs) So maybe he feels like working for Saul as an investigator is a, a little low stakes work on the side. But you wouldn't think at this point that he would be inclined to do that. I mean, there is like a fondness of sorts between them they go back a ways at this point and Saul has helped him out in the past mm-hmm. right when Mike was under investigation for murder by those cops from Philly and Saul helps him get out of that and get the notebook so there's a relationship here so i imagine that we will get some answers to this right now it doesn't seem like mike is going to say yeah i want to work for Saul like he's in pretty deep with Gus at this stage yeah. So I don't know. This is one of the enduring questions here. This is one of my big questions about the rest of the season.
0: Another dot needing connection. All right. This is not skepticism. We've already said I completely trust these writers. They're gonna connect these dots. Yes. I'm just I'm mm-hmm. just curious about it. Okay. Where's Lalo? We haven't seen him. Since I miss Tony <laughs> Dalton so much. We haven't seen him since episode one. Where in the world <laughs> is
2: Lalo Salamanca? Yeah,
0: exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you about my Rockabella story off air. So, um, there's this illuminating quote from, that Peter Gould gave to Entertainment Weekly about the proof that Lalo might be looking for, uh, and this ties into we see the super lab, uh, Gus's super lab again in the preview for next week. Peter Gould said if fans watched the beginning of last season carefully, Lalo is making a bunch of phone calls and trying to understand what it is Werner Ziegler was building for Gustavo Fring. And that would definitely be a vulnerability for the Fring organization. He needs some kind of... Lalo needs some kind of proof that Gus is plotting against the cartel. Otherwise, killing him while he's making big big bucks for Don Eladio is going to be a problem for the Salamanca family. So why is Lalo going down south to find out what was going on with the construction site is a question. There's this other thing where... There's this character, Kai, for folks who don't remember what happened on a TV show that aired like two years ago, right? <laughs> There's this character, Kai, who was working on building the super lab, working for Werner, and it helps betray Werner to Mike, right? Mm-hmm. And then when Mike is sending all the lab guys away to to drive off to, to points unknown and then fly back from whence they came, uh, Kai's like, it had to be done, Werner was soft and we know that Mike was really distressed to have to kill Werner. So Mike punches him him. to the Mm -hmm. ground. And I guess in the commentary for that episode, uh, the writer said uh, Mike made a mistake here and it will come back to haunt him. And so Mm. Kai might be a character who would have reason to be angry at Mike, be vulnerable to give up information, perhaps he seems Mm -hmm. like such a minor character to hinge Something yeah. like this on, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts or feelings <laughs> A lot of about of events this season
2: have hinged on minor characters, <laughs> true, <laughs> so true. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, it, it is curious. Like I guess Lalo could have headed south initially, and then somehow he gets wind of what happened to Nacho, and he turns around and comes right back. Like maybe that is just putting us off the trail a little bit right? because he's put everyone in the series off his trail, which I like. I like that we're just as in the dark about (laughs) Lalo's whereabouts and motivations as everyone in the series. You know, I think it would sap some of the suspense if we knew, if we were getting Lalo scenes, or we could see him plotting or creeping across the border or whatever it is. Like, we don't know. He could turn up next week. He could turn up three episodes down the line. He could be sitting in someone's apartment when they come home. We have no idea. It's like the 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 Jaws theme is playing. Like (laughs) I'm seeing Lalo everywhere.
0: (laughs) I was rewatching some of those episodes when Lalo was poking around the construction site, the alleged like chicken chiller uh, Mm -hmm. that Gus is building here. And something that he says to Bolsa in, in one of those episodes is Bolsa's like, the thing you have to understand with Gustavo Fring is that it's not personal. It's business. It's business no matter what. And uh, Lalo said, even what happened in Santiago and it's been addressed in Breaking Bad that we don't know right. about Gus's life in Chile before he came up north. There are some indications that it might be connected to Pinochet, which would be, yeah. like, uh, an interesting left turn for the show to take. But, like, could Lalo be headed down to Chile to find some intel on – I mean, I don't know how that would be – I mean, Peter Gould told us what it was about. And I'm like, but what if it's about <laughs> Pinochet? But – um. <laughs> But well, you know he's
2: driving in the right
0: direction. He's going south. You know,
2: yeah. but it's like Aladio says to Gus after killing Max: the only reason you're still alive is because I know who you are, and we still don't know who he is. Not really. Like there's so much we don't know about Gus. Even the nature of his relationship with Max, which is sort of implied, suggested that maybe it was a romantic relationship, but that hasn't been confirmed. I don't think it's going to be confirmed because Gus is such a cipher. Yeah, and he's he's gone to such lengths to wipe away his history and even part of his present <laughs> to the point that he has set up a fake family in his second home next who,
0: door. Who mo- among us has not done that at <laughs> one point or another in our life, Ben Lindbergh? Yeah, right. I
2: mean, <laughs> I would if I could, if I had the space. But I think that is kind of emblematic. I mean, he has really just wiped away his origin story. He doesn't want anyone to know. Evidently, the Salamancas or some of the Salamancas do know, and maybe that is why they work with him or why they're afraid of him was he some sort of enforcer is he a torturer who knows what he is right I mean he's capable of anything so I kind of like that there's a mysterious element to who he is and where he came from and I don't even necessarily want to know the answer to that right I'm fine with that just being left unexplained leave it to our imagination because it's more threatening that way
0: I love it all right, next week's uh, episode is called Black and Blue, as we already mentioned. Season 2, Episode 7 of Breaking Bad is called Negro y Azul, which, of course, is mm-hmm. black and blue in Spanish. That title is based on uh, a a song written about Heisenberg, that Heisenberg wears black and cooks blue meth. And it's uh, the episode before we meet Sal Goodman in Breaking Bad. Okay, a couple questions. Number one, could this be an introduction to... <laughs> Walt feels unlikely, but what do you make of this? title and how it relates to the Breaking Bad title.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one point that maybe Chris may have made on the watch is that we don't really know how quickly they're going to wrap up this timeline mm-hmm. on this series, right? Mm-hmm. For all we know, they could wrap up the present part of Saul and then jump forward to the Gene Takovic part for a substantial part of the season. I mean, maybe they wrap up this timeline in the first half of the season, yeah. and then we jump forward for the second half. That's very much in play, in which case... A lot is going to be happening soon. So the fact that this is maybe a, an allusion, a callback to the episode right before we meet Saul, does that mean that we are going to meet the fully realized Saul in this upcoming episode, <laughs> or is it too soon for that? Still, it's hard to say.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to find out. Or maybe, um, and again, I'm over. But like again, they don't, they don't do these episode titles lightly. So. You know. Character return wish corner, Reddit seems to think it knows who's gonna show up next week, and I'm really excited about it. He's actually high on my list of character wish returns, so we'll talk about that. But do you have any do you have any characters you're hoping to see soon? I
2: do. The actual answer will probably be someone I haven't thought of since two thousand ten. <laughs> but <laughs> possibilities, I guess shout out to the rewatchables and their question about would the season be better with Danny Trejo. Maybe Tortuga, Tortuga comes back because I believe his original appearance, his lone appearance in Breaking Bad was in Negro Yesu. It's right. True. So maybe he'll turn up in black and blue. I think maybe Jesse's partner, Emilio, who had a, a very mm-hmm. brief but memorable arc on Breaking Bad, and he's kind of important because Jesse recommends Saul to Walt yeah. because Emilio had used him to get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. So maybe we see how Saul got Emilio out of trouble at some point this season. Yeah, And then I guess I would say likely maybe is Patrick, right? Bill Burr's character, because we've seen plenty of Huel in this series, but no Patrick, who is the other half of Saul's A-team, And apparently he was supposed to appear in season five at some point, but he had a scheduling conflict. So Mm. he seems like a safe bet to pop up at some point if he's not too busy being Migs Mayfeld or
0: whatever else he's up to (laughs) these days. So
2: I would be sort of surprised if we don't see Patrick at some point.
0: Shown up on reservation dogs. Bill Burr is busy, man. Mm -hmm. The person that Reddit seems to have identified in the reflection of a cabinet... Classic Reddit moment, honestly, <laughs> uh, is good old Gail Bedecker, chemist for Gustavo Fring. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, if we're if we're back in the super lab next week for some reason, it might be we we get some Gail. Gail is one yeah. of my favorite Breaking Bad characters, so I would love. Yeah. And
2: and Gail's been in Saul, right? He showed yeah. up with with the wags. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but like- hair, but briefly.
0: But like to spend more time with him and, yes. and like he could be like a substantial part of the end game here. Because the question I had like after Nacho dies is how interesting is the cartel story to me with as we said, the power structure is going to be the same as it was before. But the thing is that Kim is now drawn into <laughs> and Kim <laughs> is our Kim is our other variable and now she, now Mike's following her or now like Frank is aware of her. or Lalo is aware of her, like all that right. sort of stuff. But yeah.
2: Well, there's proving and there's knowing. <laughs> I don't know if that line actually applies here. I just wanted to say <laughs> it, wanted it at some to point. say it again. <laughs> all right, fine.
0: Um, all right. So Gail, I look forward to learning more about it's coffee, right? That Gail has learned how to expertly <laughs> make. Um, So get your pour overs ready. Gail might be coming mm-hmm. back again next week and, uh, Until we can uh, find out what is black and what is blue, Mm-hmm. Ben, where can folks find you?
2: On Twitter at Ben Lindbergh, writing at The Ringer. I'll be reviewing the new Star Trek series later this it's week. It's so good. It is good. Oh, <laughs> I know you'll be podcasting about Star Trek this week elsewhere as well. So maybe we can talk about Star Trek at some point. Trial by content, some Star let's Trek. Let's all uh, just try to stay up to Poyo standards in our own life. <laughs> however, we want to manifest that. <laughs> it's, it's hard to do. It's lofty standards, but I try to hold myself to them. <laughs>
0: All right, you'll be hearing me talk about Moon Knight and Doctor Strange and all kinds of stuff around, uh, around the ringerverse. Uh, please do email us, Kim Wexler lives and or thrives at gmail.com. We appreciate your emails. Uh, this episode was produced by the great Christopher Sutton, and we'll see you next week.
1: Hablan de un tal Heisenberg, que ahora mercado.